Hi everyone, it's Seth Rudetsky. Hey, um, I'm taking a little break for the holidays, but Seth Rudetsky's back to school. We'll be back after this episode post holiday. So stay tuned for more episodes right after um, ye old new year. But today's episode is fabulous. It's me and Cameron Mannheim. And she kind of talks about back in the 70s, the lack of parent supervision. It was a lot of like, uh, why wear a seatbelt? If you ever watched the Brady Bunch, it's like, not only is Cindy in the front seat, but there are three people in the front seat. It's like Cindy and Marsha and like no one's wearing a seatbelt. It was just like, whatever. So at one point, Cameron talks about hitchhiking from I think like Southern California to Canada. And I was like, wow, you did it all in one day? She's like, no, it took like two weeks. Like, But her parents didn't realize she was missing. It's so crazy. Anyway, it was reminding me of back in the day. Now, hitchhiking was really before my time. That was more like a 70s thing. And I really like my formative years were in the 80s. But my brother is older than me. And he hitchhiked. And this is one of those <laughs> devastating stories that you see in a sitcom and you can't believe it happened, but it did. So my brother was, uh, what are those things called? Like a lab worker, whatever, for a veterinarian when he was like 17 years old or something. And the vet's name was Dr. Wolf, which you always thought was amazing. It's like, oh my God, he's a vet and his last name is Wolf. Anybody? Nobody. So one weekend, Michael was, you know, he was in high school and he got tickets to some concert. I don't know if it was like Jethro Tull or Van Halen, but he wanted to go and it was all the way upstate. So he was like, you know, I'm going to call in sick to the vet. I'm going to go hitchhike to the concert and then hitchhike home. So he calls into the vet and he's like, I'm really sick and pieces out and he hitchhikes all the way up to Albany, he sees the concert, and then he's hitchhiking home back to New York. And the good news is a car pulled up to drive him home up in Albany. Bad news is the car was driven by Dr. Wolf. Literally, Michael was like, I'm too sick to come to work. And the person like 200 miles away was his boss that he lied to. Of course, my husband was like, wait, did he have to travel then 200 miles back to New York? I don't know what the end of the story is. I do remember Michael didn't work there much longer. Anyway, it's all good. Stay tuned for Seth Rudetsky's Back to School with Cameron Mannheim. Dreading morning classes. Stealing bathroom passes. Football. Drivers at SATs. Bullies that attack me. Why do I have back knees? Jock straps. Training bras. Frenemies. We remember back then. It's like freshman year again. Ready, steady, now you're in it. Cameron Mannheim. No! Hey everyone, it's Seth Rudetsky. Welcome to Seth Rudetsky's Back to School. You may know my guest today from The Practice, Ghost Whisperer, Person of Interest, or A Game Night Anywhere in the Country. It is Ms. Cameron Mannheim. Hello. I'm so happy to be here. Cameron, where did you go to high school? When did you graduate? Oh, I went to high school in Long Beach, California, Woodrow Wilson High School, but I only went there part of the day because I was kind of a hippie and wanted to go to the alternative high school that was at Polytechnic High School in downtown Long Beach. Why didn't you just go to the hippie high school? Why did you have to go to both? I don't know if it was because the hippie high school didn't have certain classes that we needed to graduate. So we had, I went to one class at Wilson in the morning. We were bused over to a more inner city school. They had these two programs at this inner city school a hippie school, and then a super smart, smarty pants school. They were trying to integrate that area. And then we would stay there for five classes. And then I would be bused back to Wilson and have another class at the end of the day. 
That's a lot of high school in one day. I know, way too much if you ask me. But the School of Educational Alternatives is where I belonged. It was for out-of-the-box thinkers. It was for people who just learned differently. And it was a great school for me, and I loved it. I'm sorry it's not there anymore. What was your family life like? Where are you in the lineup of siblings, and how did you get along with your parents? I am the baby. I am the favorite. I am the best in my family. (laughs) Isn't that such like a younger child to say? My brother is 14 years older than me, so he is so old. And he went to Harvard Law School, so he's fancy pants. And it's only because he went to Harvard Law School that I could become an actor. Because I come from an intellectual Jewish family, and if you don't have somebody at Harvard being a doctor or a lawyer, you're screwed trying to be an artist or an actor. So thankfully, he went that route. Uh, He's 14 years older than me, and the truth is he left the house By the time I was three, he joined the Merchant Marines. So when he came back from the Merchant Marines, I didn't even recognize him. I was really afraid he'd come with a friend and I wouldn't know which one he was. But I did know because he brought me the biggest stuffed animal and he's always been my favorite because of that. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. That's my brother. My sister's five years older than me. She's an artist and yoga instructor. She also benefited from my brother being a lawyer. And now she has two sons who's a doctor and an engineer. So we're all good for the intellectual Jews in our family. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then I'm the baby. I'm the youngest and the shining star. No, that's not true. By the time you got to high school, though, you were basically an only child in the house. Your sister graduated already. Yeah. Long before that, I was an only child because my sister hated me. So I just beat to my own drum. And by then, my parents really didn't care what I was doing. So I was really on my own. And that's how I got into so much trouble. Okay. Well, you can't stop there. So give me three examples of the trouble you got in. Uh, One would be I hitchhiked to Canada (laughs) with a friend who told me she'd never been out of the country. And my parents just thought I was staying at friend's house and they didn't really, you know, they just believed me. I was a good liar, which is the beginning of my acting career. That's one of the things. Hold on, hold on, wait, no, I need to hear everything. How old were you? How many cars? Was it one car to Canada? Go. Oh God, no, this was hitchhiking. Like Canada to the open air rainbow festival in Oregon and just hitchhiking from interesting thing to enter and all the way up to Vancouver, Canada. And I remember at the border, This was a long time ago. I was like 17. We got to the border and they said you had to have $200 each to get into the country. So we had to hitchhike back and get into a truck with somebody who had enough cash to get us in. That was crazy. And we basically, we just touched Vancouver and turned around. We just wanted to get her into the other country. The person in the truck gave you the $200? He didn't give it to us. He just had to prove he had it. Oh, I see. Because Canada doesn't want a bunch of vagrants coming in and not have money to spend. So that was the number one, like, bad news bears that I hitchhiked to Canada. So wait, how many days did this hitchhiking excursion take? Three weeks? Yeah, about three weeks. We hitchhiked for about three weeks. We got up to Vancouver. We stayed in campsites. We met people. We stayed at their houses. We were idiots. We were such stupid idiots. And then we did fly home from Portland. When did your parents find out? Well, first of all, how did they not notice you were not at your friend's house for three weeks? That's the way it was when I was growing up. Either you had parents that were helicopters or parents that were just like, oh, you're just, you know. I was the third child, you know, and uh, I was an actor and a hippie and... I don't know. They weren't paying attention. They really weren't. 
So that was one of the things that made me trouble. I got arrested. For uh, what? I've been arrested a couple of times. My mom loves to tell this story. I had my feet out of a car window and the police pulled me over and he told me I couldn't have my feet out the car window. So I pulled him back in. But when he left, I flipped him off. And then he came back and put me in jail. And then my parents came down and argued with the judge that there shouldn't be a fine involved because my parents would have to pay for the fine and then I'd learn nothing. So they asked him if I would sweep the county jailhouse instead. How old were you when this happened? I was probably 15. Was that your parents just being cheapskates or did they really want you to quote unquote learn a lesson? Both. That was totally both at the same time. And then I got arrested again when I was in college and this time it was different. I called my mom and dad and I'm like, you guys, I'm in jail. And they're like, oh my God, what for? And I said, well, I was arrested for participating in a pro-choice rally. And my mom literally went, oh my God, that's wonderful. Mazel tov. And I'm like, mom, I just need you to get me out of jail. And she's like, no, honey, you stay in there and make your point. Click. <gasps> and she, she was like, I'm not, first of all, I'm not paying for you to get out. There you go. There again, cheap and also purposeful. I'm not paying for you to get out and you stay in there and make your point. So I was in jail for, I don't know, nine hours before they let me out. You got into legit trouble. Now, what about any trouble with any teachers? Were you, did you mouth off like me or were you good at teachers in school? I got into a ton of trouble. On Red, White, and Blue Day in high school, I wore a flag to school. And we called the local police department and asked if that was legal. And they said, as long as you don't sit down on the flag and you don't pin it, you can wear it. So I came to school wearing an American flag that I had just kind of tied around me like a towel and I wouldn't sit down. And my teacher was like, you have to sit down. And I said, I can't sit down. I can't deface the flag. And he's like, you must sit down. I said, I won't sit down. (laughs) He sent me to the principal's office. The principal was like, you have to take that flag off. I took the flag off and I had cut off shorts, which was illegal. And then he sent me home. So that was one. And then one time I did mouth off to a teacher. I got into a huge fight with him. And then I said, I need to leave this classroom. And he wouldn't let me. So I, it was on the first floor. I jumped out the window (laughs) (laughs) and I got suspended. And on the suspension slip, on the back of the slip, it gives reason, you know, it has little, they're printed and you check off a box. And one of the boxes was repeated defiance. And that was checked off. And my father went to the school board to argue it and said, my daughter only jumped out once that is not repeated, and I want the suspension overturned. And it was. That was my dad. But by the way, my dad loved to fight. He probably went to small claims court mm, 30 times in his life. So it made sense that I sued. I took my father to court when I was 16. Oh, God. Wait, it backfired on him? You wound up suing him? Yes. So when I was in sixth grade, I borrowed my father's camera. It was a Canon camera. I took a bunch of pictures, I had them developed, and I gave the camera back to my dad. Well, about two years later, so now I'm in eighth grade, my dad says, you know, you never returned that camera. And I said, dad, I totally returned it. I got the pictures developed and I returned it. And he goes, I don't have it, Cameron. And, you know, I just think it would be the right thing for you to pay it back. And I'm like, what are you talking about? But he convinced me that the right thing to do was to work all year That This camera, this Canon camera was worth $200 back then because I'm 100. That took me all year to earn at the pizza restaurant I worked at. So finally, I paid him back 
even though I didn't think I needed to. And he was so happy and proud of me. We had a dinner and he said, I'm so proud that you made good on this commitment you had. And then that was that. I'm in eighth grade. Cut to, I am now in 12th grade and I am doing a play in the high school and I need a big man's overshirt. So I go to my dad's closet and way in the back of the closet at the very corner in the back left, I spy the Canon camera. (gasps) Are you fucking kidding me? And by the way, my brother is now at Harvard Law School. I take the Canon camera. I'm furious. I spent that whole year paying off my dad. It ruined my life. And I couldn't believe it. And so I call my brother and he was like, Cameron, not only is that Canon camera yours, but the $200 plus interest and all the pain and suffering that you had to do for that whole year is yours. And I went to my dad and I'm like, this is bullshit, dad. And we actually were able to use foul language in my family because they thought it helped, you know, express yourself. So, and he's like, no, I will buy you an equal camera. I go, I don't want a camera. I want that year back. And he was like, no, that's the way it goes, Cameron. That's the rule of law. So my brother wrote him a letter saying what I deserved as my lawyer. He wrote it as my lawyer (laughs) saying, this is what I wanted. It was like $999 because that's all you could do in small claims court was $1,000. And then he wrote back and we wrote back and I finally took him to court. It was Mannheim versus Mannheim by Mannheim and Mannheim. And you can imagine the judge was like, what is happening? <laughs> so we do the court case, we explain everything, and the judge rules in my favor. And you know, you have 30 days to pay. My dad doesn't talk to, well, he does talk. He tells me he's very proud that I took him to court. He was very proud of me. But he waits till the 30th day at 11.59. And <laughs> under my door, he slips a check. It's the greatest story. I have all of the paperwork. I have the court paperwork and documents because I'm very sentimental that way. But my father could not have been more proud of me for taking him to court. So it wasn't really acrimonious. He was more like, I've taught her well. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Exactly. Exactly. God, I love your family. Was pizza the only after-school job you had, or did you have a lot of them? I mean, I did, you know. I moved from Jack in the Box to Kentucky Fried Chicken to the pizza places where I really wanted to be because it was groovy and everybody came in there. It was the hot spot. So I was really lucky. But I was a Renaissance Fair girl. So every Friday, I would hitchhike to Agoura Hills and I would be at the Renaissance Fair for three days. I mean, that's where I learned everything set. They had, you know, orgy tents and weed tents. It was crazy. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. A, you're saying this is the job you had or this was your nerd pastime? Well, I was paid in like food stamps for the fair. I actually went to fair school. You have to go and learn how to speak in the queen's tongue. Doth thou know what time it be? And you have to learn about the whole fairground so you can help the visitors navigate their way through the fair. So I did actually go to, you know, basic fair training. And then I got a job and was paid in food stamps. You know, food for the fair. We have a Renaissance fair near where I live in upstate New York. And it's basically like, you know, grog and like a mime show. There's no orgies. So what's happening? Was it, 
literally called an orgy tent or was it a it different was called, name? Yes, it, well, it wasn't called the orgy tent. It was called the Queen's Tongue. Oh. It was a crazy time in my life. I'd hitchhike up there Friday. I'd stay in a tent. I didn't stay in the Queen's Tongue, but it was available. And, you know, everybody showered naked together outside. It was my personal renaissance being there. And I was there from probably 15 and a half until maybe a year after I graduated college. I kept going. Did you have any boyfriends or was it just kind of a free-for-all there? Well, I mean, I had, there was Adam, you know, and he had great hands. He was a juggler. And there were, (laughs) you know, I was the girl who wished I had been born just maybe 10 years earlier so I could have been at Woodstock, you know? Mm. And then I was just reliving that life at the fair. I played guitar and I was free and it's so crazy because now I'm so kind of like organized and controlling and I'm the polar opposite. But out there I was just, yeah, I actually was in love with the Flying Karamazov brothers. So that's why I ended up going to Santa Cruz College because that's where they were from. And I'm like, I'm, I'm just going to hitchhike and follow the Flying Karamazov brothers to Santa Cruz. What did you think you were going to be when you grew up? What was your goal in high school, career-wise? That's Really interesting question. You know, my family were all academics. My father was a mathematician. My mother was a school teacher. Everyone was smarty pants. So I knew I had to go to college. It wasn't a question. The problem with me was in California, you have to pass two language credits to get into college. And I failed French and Spanish twice. So this was a very big deal for my family. I had applied to UC Santa Cruz because I loved the Flying Karamazov Brothers. And they said, you're accepted, but you have to get these credits first. So I moved to Santa Cruz and went to Cabrillo College, which was a local community college. And I mean, anyone who is from a Jewish intellectual family knows that when you go to a community college, you can't be buried in a Jewish cemetery. Like that is the worst thing that could ever happen. 100%. Oh, God. My family was mortified. The shame. It was such a shame. But by the way, incredible college. So I want to just say it's where I met my first acting teacher who changed my life. And I told her at the time, I promise you that if I ever win an award, you will be the first person I thank. Cut to my Emmy in 1998. I have to thank Wilma Marcus for everything she taught me. She was the first person I thanked, as I told her when I was in Korea. But what really changed my life about that moment in my life is that I had to take two language credits and I didn't know what to do. I just, my brain doesn't work in terms of learning languages. So I went to the language board at Carrillo College. I'm going to do something crazy, Chinese or something completely different. Maybe it'll use a different part of my brain. And there I saw on the board a little three by five card that said sign language offered as a language credit for one semester only. Now, I needed two semesters and it has to be the same thing. So I went up to the registrar's office and there was like 14 registrars. I went to the first one on the left and I said, can I sign up for two in one semester? And the registrar said, no, you can't do that. And I said, okay, thank you. And I left the line and I went to the 14th registrar and I just did it on the application. I signed up for sign language one and sign language two. Ah. And I was just talking to the registrar and all of a sudden stamp 
And I was in both classes. I felt like I had pulled off the crime of the century. So I was so excited. So I had, and this is no joke, I had intermediate sign language at 9 a.m. and beginning at noon. Oh, do you hear my cat fight in the back? Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> cat fight. Cat. Here, let me just throw something at them. Quit it. All right. So anyway, I went to sign language and I did both classes in one semester. And I got an A in intermediate and a B in beginning. Go figure. Wow. <laughs> and I went on to UC Santa Cruz. And that was that, right? I never used sign language again. Four years go by. It's my last week of UC Santa Cruz. I just got into NYU to get my master's degree in the acting department. I'm walking down the street and I see a man get hit by a car. <gasps> this is prior to, you know, cell phones. And I'm like, oh my God. And I run to the nearest house. I knock on the door. I'm like, there man got hit by a car. Please call the ambulance. Please call the police. And, you know, four minutes later, the police were there and the ambulance were there and they were surrounding this man who was on the ground. And they were saying to him, sir, could you tell us your name? We'd like to contact your family. And he doesn't, his eyes are open, but he doesn't say anything. And they're like, sir, he's probably in shock. Sir, could you please tell us your name? We need to contact your family. And he doesn't say anything, although he's looking straight up at them. And then they yell at him and they're like, sir, we've asked you three times. Please tell us the name of your family so we can contact them. And I don't know. I don't know why I even thought this. I hadn't signed in four years. I just walked over. I tapped a policeman on the shoulder and I said, is it possible he's deaf? And they said, I don't know, can you ask him? And of course, when you take two semesters of sign language, you're going to remember, are you deaf? And could you sign slower? That's all you remember. I leaned over and I said, are you deaf? And he lifted up his broken arm and he signed yes. And I'm like, he's deaf, he's deaf. And we're like, oh my God, he's deaf. Oh my God, he's deaf. Like we don't. And he's like, get his phone number. And I was like, I really don't know sign language. They're like, you can get his phone number. So I'm like, sir, your phone number. And by the way, numbers in sign language are not easy. You think they're going to be easy and they're not. And when you're upside down and have a broken arm, they're 50 times harder. So I sat there with that man and I said, I need your phone number. And I must have had to say, I'm sorry, could you sign that again? Maybe 15 times, because that's how hard numbers are upside down. So finally I go, I think this is his number. I asked him if it, and he said, yes. So then the policeman goes, would you come with us to the hospital? And I go, I'm telling, I, I don't know sign language. <laughs> and he said, well, you know more than we do. Then this thing flashed over me, Seth, where I thought, I have never been asked so nicely to get in the back of a police car before. I think I should go. <gasps> They're usually holding your head down. Usually, and literally, I'm handcuffed. And so <laughs> I get in. I get in, I go to the hospital. I guess I got the number right because his parents showed up, his wife and his two children, everyone deaf. And the doctor comes out and he said, could you please tell his parents that he has a small tear in the lower left ventricle of his heart? I'm like, no, no, I can't. And so I'm literally doing Pictionary and I'm doing gestures. And look, the man was going to live and I was able to translate that he was going to be fine and that he was going to come home with them. I wasn't able to do much more than that. But I left that day thinking this was an extraordinary experience. And then four days later, I moved to New York to go to NYU. And I was walking down the street. I was on Waverly and Broadway. 
I looked up and there was a sign on a building that said, New York Society for the Deaf. I walked in and said, when are your beginning classes? They said, Monday night. I took sign language every week for my entire graduate school education and I was fluent when I graduated, which brings me to where I met you. That's right, because Cameron got to be in a Broadway musical because she could sign. She did Spring Awakening, the Deaf West production. And it's all because you failed French and Spanish in high school. Yes, that's the only reason why. And because my parents are intellectuals and I had to go to college. So I guess the whole moral is failing is good as long as you turn it into lemonade. You know, you got to fail to figure out your course. Oh, my God. What an amazing story. Who were you uh, admiring when you were a kid, celebrity-wise? Who are you looking up to? That's a really good question, because my parents didn't let me really watch television. Oh, no. I guess, you know, I was a Brady Bunch kid and a Partridge Family kid. I wasn't anything more lofty than that. I was just, I loved Leif Garrett and David Cassidy. You know, years later, I was a bartender on Broadway. I worked for the concessions people, and Aaron Sorkin was my boss. Wow. Isn't that crazy? And I worked with Peter Krause, and I mean, just, but Aaron was my boss. That's when he was trying to get his scripts backstage to Matthew Broderick and Barry huh. Miller. It was crazy. But I remember once I was serving a drink, and I looked up, and it was David Cassidy, and I almost... Wow. You know, those old crushes. Mm. He had posters on my wall of him. So I also really loved The Who, like musical people. I had a big Cat Stevens drawing on my wall. I was really more into music. I was a bit of a hippie, stoner musician. So music is really where I found myself in high school. My music taste was handed down to me definitely by my older sisters and brother. Where did you get your taste from? Were you like, I'm discovering this on my own? Or was someone like, you'll love this cassette tape? It was mostly the group of people I was in and also this idea that we had kind of missed our calling from Woodstock. So we were listening to, you know, Hendrix and Crosby, Sills, Nash and & Young and The Dead. This was my era. And living in Long Beach was awesome because we had the Long Beach Arena where they did huge concerts, Wolf and Rissmeller concerts. Everyone was there. Queen, Genesis, everyone was performing there. And you could get free tickets at the Tower Records because you weren't allowed to sell tickets to concerts that were televised. So I used to go and stand in line at Tower Records, get my free tickets. Actually, it was the Warehouse Record Store, sorry. Get free tickets and go to these concerts. And this is a really funny story. I got really crappy seats for Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. They were my favorite. I learned how to play the guitar because of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. I learned every one of their songs when I was younger. And I had the worst seats up in the nosebleed section. And I was about to leave because I was pissed. Even then I was a seat snob. I don't know about you, but I've been a seat snob my whole life. Like, I'm not even staying at this concert. These tickets suck. And we're walking, my friend Phyllis from the Jewish Community Center, we're walking out and we see a little freckly faced, pimply faced kid who clearly had a crush on Phyllis. And he's like, hi Phyllis. And she's like, oh, hi David. And uh, he was working the floor. And so she's like, hey, David, could you let us on the floor so we could just walk around and maybe get a little close to Crosby, Still Snashing Young? And he's like, I'm not supposed to. And she's like, come on, David. And David said, all right. And David 
let us walk on the floor of the Long Beach Arena. And we're just circling the stage, getting as close as we can to Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. And I notice that there's four seats folded up. <gasps> I'm like, Phyllis, there's four seats folded up in the fourth row center. Let's go sit in them until somebody kicks us out. She's like, oh my God, oh my God. So we go and we sit in fourth row center in these two seats. And then about two songs later, this girl comes up and she's like, Cameron. I'm like, hi. She goes, oh my God, it's so great to see you. I'm so glad you're sitting next to us. And I'm like, oh, me too. And she goes, why don't you have a backstage pass? And I'm like, I don't know. I didn't get one this time. She's let me go get you one. I'm like, what's happening? What is happening? I'm at my favorite concert in the whole world, sitting fourth row center. I was just about to leave the arena. And some girl I don't know is getting me a backstage pass. <laughs> so she comes back in about a song and a half. She gives both me and Phyllis a backstage pass. And I'm like, Phyllis, I'm going to go to the bathroom. You have to find out who she is and how I know her. She's like, okay. I don't know who this girl is. I don't go to the bathroom. I just walk around with my backstage pass, flaunting it, like right on my leg, going, I got a backstage pass, everybody. <laughs> and I come back a song later, and I'm like, okay, who is she? And she goes, well, her name is Joanna. And I'm like, that's it? <gasps> I'm like, Phyllis. And she's like, that's all I could get. She's like, oh my God, my name's Joanna. Cameron and I go way back. I have no <laughs> idea who this girl is. It's killing me. I feel terrible. I'm watching my favorite people. And I'm also going, I feel awful at the same time. It's like stage fright. It's like exciting, but you want to vomit. That's what I felt like. And so finally show's over. She goes, you want to go backstage? And I'm like, yes. And we go backstage and we meet David Crosby and Graham Nash, Neil Young won't let us meet him, and Stephen Stills won't let us meet him, <laughs> but we meet them. I'm like, what has happened to my life? Like an hour ago, I was a peon, and now I'm backstage. It was crazy. I don't know who she is. She goes, do you want to come to the Emerson, Lincoln Palmer concert with me? And I'm like, I do. I go to about nine concerts with this girl. In fact, she flew me in on a freaking helicopter with Ted Nugent to the California Jam. I'm not kidding you, Seth. It's the craziest shit, and I don't know who she is. I'm just playing along. Honestly, this is where you become such a great actor. Anyway, at some point, maybe after the California Jam, I just said, is your dad, like, does he own Ticketmaster? How do you get these tickets? And she looked at me seriously with like a white face and just said, you don't know how I get these tickets? Oh, God. And I said, no. She goes, oh, I thought you knew what I was doing every time I had you meet me at the backstage pylon. And I'm like, no, I didn't know. Like, I wasn't, I was naive and yet worldly. Wait, is, is this going where I think it's going? Yes, it <sighs> is. She was a full on groupie and was literally one of those girls that when you watch a documentary you hear about and everyone knew about her and she would go to any concert and get backstage passes and tickets and I was like I'm sorry I didn't know I don't know what to say and then I had to go the next step and go and I just want to know like where we first met it was <gasps> terrible it was one of those terrible moments mm. in life I mean, it makes me kind of emotional talking about it because she was so important in my life and she was so generous to me. And I felt like I did her wrong by not understanding all of this. But she's like, Cameron, you don't remember me. And I, well, I, I, 
I'm trying to put it all together. I remember so many things we talk about. She goes, you know, I moved to your middle school. I was like a low rider cholo girl and no one spoke to me. And you had lunch with me twice a week. I was Joe, Joanna. And I was like, oh my God. I totally remember that. But she now was gorgeous and nails and clothes. And she used to wear the low rider chinos and dark hair and, you know, talk different than us. And she's like, you used to eat lunch with me twice a week. And I always wanted to do something nice for you. And it was just, we didn't really, our friendship kind of fizzled out after that because I think it was so embarrassing to her that I hadn't put any of that together. But I was really naive about it all. Just thought her dad was the head of Ticketmaster. (laughs) But I wrote about her in my book so that I could give her what she deserved. And I was very grateful to her and sorry to have known what I was a part of. But, you know, it was incredible. I met Emerson Lake and Palmer, and I met the band from Genesis, and I went to Queen with her backstage. Like, can you imagine all those memories and amazing experiences that she gave me? You know, it's funny, I wrote about people in my book, and some of them caught wind and called me. I changed names to protect the guilty. I kept the real names to protect the innocent, you know, and give them their due. Mm. Some people called me, and some people didn't, and she never did. Oh, man. You met all those people, and if you hadn't lost your father's camera, you could have had all those photos. <laughs> it's called a callback. And what about driver's ed? Did you learn that through high school? Yes. Well, to be honest with you, my mom is kind of, if I was a writer, I would have an August Osage County on my hands, but I'm not that good. But my mom used to let me drive her when I was 14. She hated to drive. So I just told her I could drive, and she's like, okay. You know, she just let me drive. You didn't have a license or any training? I didn't have a license. And when I was 15, I ordered a motorcycle out of the LA Times and had it delivered to my house, a motorcycle, a Suzuki 185 two-stroke. I called my brother at Harvard and he taught me how to drive it over the phone. And this is what he said to me, true story. I will teach you how to drive that motorcycle if you promise me you will never drink while you own a motorcycle. I said, I promise, you know, a vacant promise. And then he taught me, he literally taught me on the phone. He goes, this is this, this is this, left hand, right hand, and I learned how to drive talking to him on a landline and then running back in the house and asking him questions. And I rode a motorcycle till I was 40. I never drank. I still don't drink to this day because I learned how to drive from my brother when I was 15. Hold on, hold on. Your parents allowed you as a young teenager to just get on a motorcycle? Did they notice you were on it? Seth, Seth, Seth. I parked my motorcycle about a block and a half away. (laughs) They absolutely never know I had a motorcycle. They didn't know I have 12 holes in my ear either. They were not paying attention to me. In high school, I got my ears pierced all the way up to my cartilage. I had long hair in front of my ears. They were not paying attention to me. I got 12 holes in my ear, I rode a motorcycle, and I drove my mother around town when I was 14, and she thought I could drive. She wasn't really quite sure of the age you could drive. I drove a Plymouth Fury 3 with my mother in it when I was 14. I mean, I looked 20. I had big boobs, I was tall. And truly, my mother, who is not a big drinker or anything, if you asked her when I was born, she wouldn't even really know. I mean, she knows the date, but she's not exactly sure of the time. She just wasn't, she was thinking about other things. Okay, hold on. You had to work an entire year to pay for a camera, but you were also able to buy a motorcycle. Where did that money come from, dear? Pizza money. The motorcycle cost $175. 
So, you know, I made some money in my time slinging slices, but uh, that's it. That's all I ever bought was a cherry red Suzuki 185 two-stroke. And I had it for a long time. And then I moved into a CB750, rode around New York City on my motorcycle while I was there. I have had some illustrious people on the back of my motorcycle. Alan Cumming, George Wolfe. You know, everybody hates the subway. So if you're anywhere in New York, and you have a motorcycle and an extra helmet, you can get anyone on the back of your bike. No, I'm not going on any damn motorcycle <laughs> where my leg gets sliced off because you make a close turn. It's not happening. I'll meet you on the number two train. What about, did you go to prom, as we call it, or the prom? I did go to prom. I went to prom with my best girlfriend. We went together, and I wore a suit, and she wore a dress, and we... And I know everyone thinks I'm a lesbian, Seth, and I wish I was. I literally tried so hard to be a lesbian. I'm lesbian adjacent. Any huge heartbreak in high school? Yeah, I've had some huge heartbreaks. You know, here's the thing. In my life, and you know, I'm almost 60 now, I've always had like unrequited love. That's the story of my life. Either I was madly in love with someone and they didn't feel the same way, or they were madly in love with me and I didn't feel the same way. So I've never had, you know, I have for short moments, but not for any long period of time where the friction was great together. But that's kind of the story of my life. I've been solo most of my life. That's why I had, I'm a single mom and, you know, I'm a solo flyer that way. And that began back in high school. You kind of set the stage. Oh, yes. I was so in love. It's heartbreaking, really. That's all you want. You think that's all you need. So I think it was finally when I figured out that that wasn't going to be my lot in life. That was not part of the cards I was dealt, that I was going to figure it out another way. So I've got lovers in every port, but it's (gasps) never been someone I wanted to have baby with or make a home with. Now it's time for This or That. In this segment, I make my guest choose between two pop culture sensations from their high school years. In terms of, I know you didn't watch that much TV, but I'm sure you watched Norman Lear shows. Were you at Jefferson's, Amon, and All in the Family or Good Times? Mm, All in the Family. How come? I don't know, really political, the way, you know, my family would talk and scream and yell and argue about it. And then we also just found how clever it was that it was, you know, Meathead was saying one thing, but we knew that Norman Lear meant the polar opposite, you know? We felt like we had family there. And now what about comedy-wise? Were you SNL, which was kind of just beginning when you were in high school? Were you Carol Burnett? I was SNL. Really? Well, that was so hip. Is that why? Because, I mean, that was like your freshman year of high school. You know, I I love Carol Burnett. Are you kidding? She's amazing. I always felt like there wasn't as much political commentary. It was just, you know, it was the most amazing devotion to clowning. It was incredible. And I loved it. But SNL, I felt like was like teaching me stuff. I don't know. It was so clever. I'm a clever, I like clever wordsmithing, you know? That's why you like games. Were you a Poseidon Adventure, Towering Inferno, The Swarm, Airport? Poseidon Adventure. Ah, the best. I was like, there is a big woman who is a star of that movie. I am all in. You know, that's the beginning of me wanting to be an actor. You know? Mm. That was indelible in my mind, watching Shelley be fantastic. Oh, God, she was so good. You and I, we both love games. 
in the 70s? Were you uh, Match Game, $10,000 Pyramid, Joker's Wild, Password? What would you watch on TV? Price is Right? So I liked the $10,000 Pyramid. I didn't like the Price is Right, and I didn't like Match Game. I don't really like things where you're well, I guess match game is some skill, but $10,000 pyramid is all about, you know, smart words and somebody who is smart is going to do really well in that game. I don't love dominoes. I don't like any games that are luck or chance. I just won $1,500 in my poker game on Monday. So don't mess with me. No, I'm a hundred percent. I just had a very hostile game of code names recently. We'll discuss it later. Um, were you a soap opera lady? All my children, one life to live, guiding light. No, I thought they were stupid. Thank you. And I did one. I played a rabbi. I married somebody I can't remember, but I was always embarrassed. To be honest. <laughs> Not that there isn't some great work on the soap operas. Were you more into Saturday Night Fever or Grease? Oh, Saturday Night Fever, just hands down. Also because it was more dramatic and felt more real and was dealing with, I don't know. Again, Grease just felt like even though there were themes in Grease that were heavy, I feel like they were. I don't know. I don't want to say anything. Grease is a freaking classic. All right, it's Saturday all right. Night Fever for me. What about Goody Two Shoes shows? Were you a Little House or a Waltons? Both. Really? It was both. I love Little House. I love the Waltons. Waltons sentimental. Little House was. Love those little feisty. Mm. Melissa Gilbert. Oh yeah. And then in terms of Brady Bunch, you know, everyone had their own storyline. Would you like it when there was an Alice, a Cindy, a Jan, or a Marsha storyline? I liked it when there was a Marsha storyline. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. I just identified with her, even though I'm the baby. You know what's crazy? Maureen McCormick is my friend. She came to watch my son in Dancing with the Stars. Maureen McCormick came. And like, she was my girl. Uh... I wanted to grow up and be like her. And also Susan Day. I just dreamed to be them. I dreamed, you know, and I dreamed in my shower with my shampoo bottle of getting awards and having talk shows, and they made me dream. This is High School Versus Now, where we find out how much my guest has changed since high school. So, Cameron, you get a lead in the Renaissance Loot Festival. Mm -hmm. And after you perform, you hear a couple of the ladies in waiting say that your loot playing stinks. How would you have reacted back in high school? I would have cried, written about it in my journal, and never spoken a word to anyone, and probably tried to befriend those girls. Tried to befriend them so that they would like you better the next time you performed? Yes, and not let them know I heard, but just try to be ingratiate myself to them. There is a, a The Practice Marathon, and TV Guide writes it up, and it says... Watching the series again, we discover Cameron Mannheim is not the actress we thought she was. Please return those Emmys ASAP. What would you say if you ran into that reviewer at a party at Jodie Foster's house? I would say, I heard you didn't like my performance in uh, the practice. You want to tell me a little bit more about that? Just put them on the spot and made them feel super, super uncomfortable. Oh, but would you be actually interested in knowing what the critique was or just making them feel uncomfortable? Not really, because it's just one person who thinks that way. I mean, I'm the person who thinks if you're going to believe one bad review, you better believe all the good reviews. And it's just one human. You know how many movies I hated that you probably loved or vice versa? I would have probably just made them feel a little uncomfortable and then said, you know, I totally forgive you and you're right to your own opinion. I really don't take it to heart so much, the reviews. Okay, again, you're at the Renaissance Festival. (laughs) 
you show up for Mandolin Mondays and you were wearing the same blue Wentz dress as someone else. And she says, would you mind not wearing that dress? I really wanted to wear this one today. I'd probably say it's the only one I have. If you'd like to find one that fits me, which probably will be difficult, I'm happy to change. Oh, you wouldn't say, no, I want to wear this. No, I would say that now. But back then I would have said like, it's hard for me to find clothes that fit. If you can find something that I like as much, I'll change. So I guess that answers my question that if you showed up for a red carpet event and you and Jodie Foster were wearing the same dress. Oh, I would be like, Jody, get over here. Let's take pictures right this minute. <laughs> you wouldn't be like, you're going to be in the worst dress list or like, you know, you're uncreative for wearing the same dress. You wouldn't care. No, that is not where I go. You know, I'm the girl who will get a Louis Vuitton bag on Canal Street for $30. Then somebody will say, I love your bag. And I'll go, oh, I got it on Canal Street for $30. And like, why do you tell people that? Everyone would believe that you had a real Louis Vuitton. And I would say, that's exactly why I tell people, because I don't want anyone to believe I have a real Louis Vuitton or that matters to me. So wearing the same dress would not make me, ah, Maybe originally I'd be like, oh shit, same dress. But then I would just have to turn it into something positive. Like Jodie Foster is wearing the same dress. How fantastic. You know, I would just turn it into something good. You got a positive attitude. Okay, in our last two questions, we'd like to know if someone from your high school is listening right now, what would you like to say to them? If it's one particular person or a particular teacher or the entire high school, is there anything you'd like to get off your chest or possibly say to them? That's so nice of you to ask. Um, Joanna, who changed my life in music. And I would just want to say to her that I wish I would have said something earlier so it wasn't such a huge, big, vacant hole that uh, I was so grateful for everything she did for me. And having lunch with her was nothing. It was just my true spirit of wanting to include people. But what she did for me changed the trajectory of my life. I have so many stories related to what Joanna did for me, including Stephen Stills playing at my 50th birthday party because of what happened with her. I would just say, I love you. I wish I could find you. And if I did find you, I would fold you into my big arms and hearts and carry you with me, not just in spirit, but in person for the rest of my life. It's very sweet. I'm sweet. You are sentimental. And what about a 15-year-old Cameron Mannheim is somehow listening through a break in the time-space continuum? Is there something you'd like to say to her? Yeah, I would. I would just say, you have everything you need to get your brass ring. You are honest and faithful and loyal and you care and you are fair and you're all the things that are hard to obtain. You've got it already. And you're talented and curious and you're beautiful. And the whole world is going to tell you that you're not, but you are. And if you just put on some boxing gloves and fight your way through it, you're going to find your way to the other side and make a difference. And just know that every time you do something good and kind and honest and honorable, you're fighting for all the young girls behind you who are just as scared as you. Go for it, girl. Wow. I don't think you knew that message. I think you actually heard that message when you were young. Well, it took me some time. I had some dark times too, you know. When you're young and every 
bus stop, every magazine, every advertisement tells you you're not good the way you are. It gets you, right? You have to find a way to make that work in your favor. It took me some time. For a long time, I, I believed it, you know? And uh, I wouldn't want to go back to those times because there are some dark times and some sad times. And now, I don't know, it gives me so much strength and optimism and joy that what the world wants to think of me, that rolls off my back. I'm truly, you know, my own person. I don't care about the designers and I don't care about what I look like. And I, blah, blah, blah. I'm just living it. These aren't dress rehearsals. This day, I never get back. I'm going to live it the best way. And the best way was when you called me yesterday and said, are you free? I'm like, fuck yeah, I'm free. Nothing makes me happier than hanging out with Seth and talking about theater and things that inspire us. A, I love that. And B, your favorite person, Florence Henderson, the title of her autobiography was Life is Not a Dress Rehearsal. Is that Mrs. right? Brady. Yes. This is the title of my book, Wake Up, I'm Fat. Girl, I remember because it was the play at the public theater. I'm obsessed with it. Wake up, I'm fat. That's right. <laughs> it is what it is. Cameron, it was such a delight. I can't wait to listen to the final version of this. Thank you so much. Me too. Seth Rudetsky's Back to School is produced by Sarah Esikoff. Our theme music was written by me, Seth Rudetsky, and sung by me and Maggie McDowell. Our band was me, Seth Rudetsky, Mark Schmid, Carrie Meads, and Jim Hirschman. This episode was mixed by Sarah Esikoff. Seth Rudetsky's Back to School is a Sirius XM production.